I'm going to say a few words, and I want you to finish the sentence for me. Are you ready? Do what makes you happy, happy. Follow your hearts or dreams. That, that, that would work. I would also accept dreams. Be true to yourself. These are common phrases that we're all familiar with. These are contemporary proverbs, even modern-day axioms that we just assume. We don't even need to prove them. We, we live in a day and age where the greatest virtue is being authentic, being true to yourself. And thus, the greatest vice is to deny or deprive yourself of anything that you want or anything that you think you are. And what this does is that it conflates and confuses and equates our pursuit of joy and personal happiness as though they are one and the same. But the truth of the matter is that joy is strangely displaced when we pursue our personal happiness first and foremost. When we focus, fixate, and favor our personal preferences, we find that joy does not always follow. And I wanna illustrate this by using an old time management metaphor. Imagine this container is you. Actually, let's start with this one. Imagine this container is you, and the sand is personal happiness. You long to fill your life with personal happiness. But what we're really after is joy represented by these rocks. And, and if you want to have personal happiness and joy together, well, we realize that it's not going to fit. If you start and prioritize personal happiness, you will find that you can't really fit joy to, uh, entirely in the container. It, it overflows. It doesn't fit. When we focus on personal happiness before joy, we find that we don't really get the fullness of joy. But instead, if we were to focus and prioritize what joy is, if our first goal is to pursue joy as God designs it and defines it, which we'll explain in a little bit, we find that then and only then are we able to find personal happiness. Look at that. Whew. I know how to measure sand, people. I know how to, yeah, thank you, thank you. I appreciate that, yes. Now, the idea here, obviously, the idea here is that if we focus on personal happiness, we will not get the fullness of joy. But when we focus on joy first, personal happiness comes. When we aim at happiness, joy does not always follow, but when we aim at joy, personal happiness does come. Now, now as we, we continue on in our series, if you're new with us, uh, we've been in a series in the book of Philippians that we're calling Return to Joy. And it's a profound section of scripture that we just heard read from Philippians 2. And what I want us to see is how Jesus is displayed and put on display his glory, his majesty and beauty, and what his humility calls us to emulate. Not in seeking our own personal preferences, but in seeking the preferences of others. Or to put it another way, we can't be full of joy if we are full of self. If there's one thing you take kind of from our, our time together, I want it to be that. We cannot be full of joy when we are full of self. And we hear that, we're like, yeah, that sounds right. I think that makes sense. We've heard the phrase before, don't be full of yourself. That's a toxic way of, of approaching life. But we also have this bent to kind of prefer and pursue our personal happiness at the expense of others. So as we turn to Philippians 2, the first thing I want to unpack for us is this, that joy goes up when division goes down. Joy goes up when division goes down. Remember, we, we've defined joy as joy is someone who is glad to be with me. Joy blossoms in the flower bed of relationships. And Paul is very clear about that. 
Paul, I mean, sees, he understands that his joy is made complete in his fellowship and relationship and partnership with the Philippian church. And, and for Paul, his joy is not just found in mere relationship, but it is also found in unity. Look with me at verses one and two again. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. There's something lacking in Paul's joy that needs to be completed. If there's any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and one mind. Now this unity of mind, I want to be careful here and clear, it doesn't mean that we must agree on everything. That's not Paul's idea here. But rather it is that we are to center our focus and attention upon the same thing, namely Jesus. Which is why Paul says later in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, this mindset that I'm wanting you to have, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. So, so Paul, will, he'll go on to show us what this kind of shared mindset looks like, which we'll get to, but I want to emphasize the importance of unity in the church. Not just for our joy, but also for our witness to the world that desperately needs the good news of Jesus. So I, what I want to do is back up just a little bit in verses 27 and 28 of chapter 1. Paul is describing the Philippians as being people who have one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And do not be frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them. Their unity is a clear sign to their opponents of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So what Paul's saying here is that the destruction of the opponents to the Christian faith is found when the church is unified together. You see, we don't defeat our enemies by literally battling against them, but rather we find that when the church is unified, our enemies are defeated. Why? Because they see the beauty of our unity and long to be a part of it. As Abraham Lincoln once said, that I destroy my enemy when I make him my friend. That's the exact idea that Paul is saying here. But the question we should ask ourselves of the church broadly and of us specifically is that is this the unity that would describe us? Are we a church that is unified as a family in such a way that, that our opponents are drawn in and say, I mean, I don't know if I agree with everything you say, but man, I cannot critique the unity that you have and the love you have for one another. I'm convinced that one of the great reasons why people are leaving the faith and why our culture is increasingly disinterested in the church is because the church is not unified. I, I think the division around politics, around race, around economics creates a division that shows our opponents that we really don't have anything worthy of giving them. Whether it's through political divide, racial divide, or economic divide, the church does not appear to be making her own joy complete in being unified. Dr. Tony Evans, he speaks to this reality in his outstanding book, Oneness Embrace, particularly around the, race, the racial divide in our culture, in our church, and nation. And Dr. Tony Evans says this, he says, the reason we haven't solved the race problem in America after hundreds of years is that people apart from God are trying to create unity while people under God who already have unity are not living out the unity we possess. He goes on to say, the result of both of these conditions is disastrous for America. Our failure to find cultural unity as a nation is directly related to the church's failure to preserve our spiritual unity. 
I think that's exactly right. I believe that one reason our joy and our witness as a church has been diminished over time is because many in the church have particularly forfeited the conversation around racial justice and reconciliation to the culture. That we're allowing the culture to define the terms and to pursue this work, and the church oftentimes is just purely critiquing the ways in which the culture is having the conversation. And there's legitimate things to critique about the way the culture is having the conversation about race and justice. But the church should be at the forefront of this work. But when the church responds to this conversation with comments like, this is too political, on one hand, or we need to tear down the system, on the other hand, we are shirking our responsibility as the unified people of Jesus who are reconciled to God and to one another and who are committed to joy and who are called to be one. When we see the work of racial justice and reconciliation as being merely societal or political or cultural, then we are missing out on both the joy that Christ offers us and the witness that Christ, the impact of Christ's witness to the world. If we want to be a people who return to joy, then we need to be a people who work toward unity and justice, not because the culture tells us to, but because we are captivated by the mission and the vision of Jesus and his kingdom. And so let me suggest, I mean, there's many things I could say here, but let me suggest, because it's easy to talk about this broad subject, like what, what do we do with this? Let me suggest one step for us. I, I want us to have a disruptively unifying experience. Create for yourself a disruptively unifying experience. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. We should find opportunities. And I'm speaking to Christians in particular here. If you're not a Christian, listen. Obviously, we're glad you're here. But this is a word to Christians. I believe we should go out of our way to interact with other Christians who are not like us. Find ways to be in relationship with people who love Jesus who may not look like you. And so, and so it's disruptive because we're stepping out of our comfort zone, we're stepping out of our cultural bubble that we tend to think is normative, but it's unifying because you're with someone that loves Jesus. You're with someone that is a part of the kingdom now and forever. So consider worshiping at another church that, that maybe has a different ethnic cultural makeup than our own. Have lunch with a Christian who has a different political leaning than you. That might be one of the more challenging things to do. Spend time with, go for a walk with a Christian who is 30 years older than you or 30 years younger than you. Have coffee with a Christian who immigrated here from another country and learn what it means to love Jesus from different perspectives and cultures. And a great pathway, this is a new initiative, actually one of our local outreach partners, Youth Front, is putting together something they're calling YF Neighborhood. It's an opportunity they're creating to create friendships across social and economic divisions by, by allowing people to leave their familiar neighborhoods and to connect with neighbors that are different from ourselves. I think it's a fantastic uh, opportunity. I encourage you to check it out through the website. But, but I'll even just speak personally. One of the joys of my life has been my, my 10 plus year friendship with my friend Brian Goins. Brian and I have been in partnership and friendship together in ministry. We, we, have, we do not see eye to eye on many things. We have been at each other's throats at times. There are times where I have not been his favorite person. There are times when he has not been my favorite person. But the joy that has come in our friendship is the fact that we've been able to have a disruptively unifying relationship because we are rooted and anchored to the things of Christ. 
The joy of our relationship comes from the fact that we are able to remain committed to one another because we are committed to a higher calling and to a higher kingdom. So joy goes up when division goes down. But the second thing I want to bring our attention to as Paul continues on is that joy goes up when preference goes down. Joy goes up when preference goes down. So look back with me at Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, can, can we just agree to do that? Like just, I mean, just, can you imagine our world if everyone lived in light of Philippians 2 verses 3 and 4? How our relationships, our workplaces, our schools, our churches, our communities, our marriages would be transformed if we lived the light of this truth emulated by our Savior and King. Now, I want to qualify what Paul means here. When he talks about humility, we tend to have a, a kind of a distorted understanding of what humility is. It's often thought that humility is about having this low view of yourself, that I'm nothing, I'm pathetic, I am a worm. Really, that's, that's just an inverted version of pride. In fact, as Jonathan was praying, he said that we, to, to pray over our seniors, he, to guard them from the twin pits, pitfalls of pride and shame. You see, it's just inverted pride. The person who says, I'm amazing, and the person who says, I am nothing, both have themselves at the center of their thinking. They're both fixated upon themselves. True humility is not having a low view of yourself. It is really having no view of yourself. In other words, you, you are not so fixated on what you want because you are so concerned and interested in the needs of others. You don't have time to complain about you not getting what you want because your interest is focused on what others need. Now, I want to be clear. Paul does not say we should neglect ourselves or our desires or needs. He says, look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. We should care for ourselves. We should seek to rest and be rejuvenated. But if you're anything like me, I, I don't think we need help in knowing how to love ourselves. I, I, I have a self-entitled PhD in me. I know how to love me. What I have a need to grow in is preferring the needs of others. C.S. Lewis, the Oxford professor who converted from atheism to Christianity, describes humility in this profound way. He says this, Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble, always telling you that he is nobody. All you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap, it's a great British line, who took a real interest in what you said, to him. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. That is the humble posture of Christ that we are to emulate. True Christ-like humility is not found in looking down upon ourselves, but looking out upon the needs of others, genuinely loving and caring and preferring their needs above our own. So again, there's many things we could say to put this into practice, but let me offer one suggestion to us. In your lives, get used to asking this question of other people, what do you need? That sounds so simple, but it is a profoundly life-changing question. When we are routinely asking the question, what do you need? Of those in our lives, you will be surprised at what comes out. In fact, several months ago, or several weeks ago, rather, uh, I don't know time during COVID, but um, I was on a phone call with a pastor here in Kansas City, Pastor uh, Charles Bond of Mount Pleasant Baptist Church, 
and, and we were, were working on a, a project that we're collaborating on together, and, and I was about to kind of jump into some logistics planning, and, and Pastor Bond just paused and said, hey, Reed, before we do that, what, what do you need today? And I, like, I, I don't know, like, I was kind of took, taken off guard, not because his, his response was uncharacteristic, but because it came at a time where I was in a very low and kind of exhausted place as a pastor, and I just started bawling on the phone, and it's just like, and, and I, what I told him in that moment, I said, you know what, I think what I needed was for you to ask me that question. I think I just needed someone to, to see me and to know that, that I had emotional needs at this time, and the fact that he just saw me and heard me and asked that question, well, I mean, I, I have a bond to Pastor Bond in a unique way because of that question, his tender-hearted, sincere question. So what I would, what I would commend to us is that as you, wherever you find yourself this time tomorrow, the people you're surrounded with, the place that God has sent you in your, your home, your school, your place of work, ask this question more routinely, what do you need? And it may not be something that is tangible that you can do, but at least in asking that question, we will find that we are showing compassion and interest. We're showing that people have occupied our minds and we want them to know that we care about them. And as we do this, we will find that there is less time to complain about how we haven't gotten the things that we want because we are genuinely concer concerned and interested in the needs of other people. Imagine our homes, our places of work, our relationships, our schools, our marriages, our city, our church, if we ask this question routinely, what do you need? So joy goes up when division goes down. Joy goes up when preferences go down. But thirdly, joy goes up when we follow Jesus down. We cannot be full of joy when we are full of self. But why is that? Why should we seek to be unified with one another even when there are significant differences? Why should we prefer the needs of others and consider their needs more important than our own? The reason why is because Jesus, the eternal Son of God, willfully gave himself for us, willfully took himself from a place of glory to a place of obscurity by becoming human in order to unite rebellious sinners to God and to one another. This is where Paul anchors. See, if Paul just ended right here, we would have a good life coach in the Apostle Paul. But what he does is he anchors and roots this command to be unified and to be humble in the person and the work of Jesus. Verses five and six, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or hoarded or held onto, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. When Paul says that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, that word grasped means literally to hoard, to hold to yourself. But instead, Jesus saw his divinity, he was fully God, but he saw his fullness of divinity not as something to be used for himself, but to be stewarded for the good of all creation. Jesus saw all that he had and all that he was as the only means by which fallen creation can be redeemed and restored which is why Paul says these beautiful words next in verses seven and eight. Jesus emptied himself by becoming the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now that word emptied, it, is, it has tripped up a lot of Christians over the years. The word emptied, it does not mean that Jesus has taken something of his, his essence and his divinity and removed it. It literally just means that he has poured himself out. 
He has not emptied himself of his godliness. He has not emptied himself of his humanness. He has poured himself out. He has poured out his life and his love, his body and his blood, so that we might be loved, forgiven, redeemed, and known. And when we experience the joy of being seen and known, of being forgiven and brought in and delighted in by Jesus our King, we then respond in kind by emptying ourselves for the sake of others. Jesus entered, left glory to enter obscurity, to bring us to himself. And so when this is our king, it is not a burden to respond in kind. And so in light of Jesus, our suffering servant king of joy, who humbled himself for our sake, part of what it means to follow Jesus is to live like him. And what that means is that we should put ourselves in places of obscurity. Let let, let me offer a helpful kind of application to this. What I mean is that we should be willing as followers of Jesus as Jesus did, to enter into lowly places and lowly tasks that we might think or others might think are beneath us. But for the Christian, there is no task or person or place that is beneath us because God has entered into our world, the lowliest place in comparison to his glory, has entered our world from glory to obscurity. And in like manner, those that worship Jesus should be willing and able to enter into obscure spaces, lowly places, taking on lowly tasks, and doing it for the good of others. Like our suffering servant king, we will find joy in humbly serving others for their sake and not for our own. We, we all know that game where we're serving someone, but we're really doing it so that they might send us a thank you card and then we could post it on Instagram and look how wonderful, humble servant I am. Like, we, we, like maybe that's just me, but I know we can play that manipulative game in our minds and hearts. But are we willing to serve in obscurity? Are we willing to, as Dallas Willard put, are we willing to abstain from causing our good deeds and qualities to be known? I think it's a really important question to ask. So often our desire to serve others is really a desire to serve ourselves by being seen and being recognized. And and that's a personal temptation of my own where, where my life and my service is very much public. It is easy for me to do good things in the in the faces of other people, seeing who I am. And this is why the discipline of obscurity or or of secrecy is so important for the follower of Jesus. Dallas Willard goes on to give us this helpful, challenging invitation. Listen to this. He says, the next time you are in a competitive situation, it could be at school, it could be with a, on a sports team, at work, in conversation with someone that you're kind of wanting to be better than, pray that the others around you will be more outstanding, more praised, and more used of God than yourself. Rejoice for their successes If Christians were universally to do this for each other, the earth would soon be filled with the knowledge of God's glory. If we had an ability to value and champion and celebrate the successes and the gifts of others, especially when they are successes and gifts that we wish we had credit for, the glory of God would be seen. Joy goes up when division goes down, when preferences go down, and when we follow Jesus down. But lastly, Joy goes up when we fall down. When we fall down. The reason why this life of joy is found in humility and in humbly serving and caring for the needs of others is because it flows from the glory of our God and King. This is the foundation 
This is why Paul builds this wonderfully applicable passage in Philippians 2 to this incredible hymn declaring the glory of Jesus. In verses 9 through 11, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So to the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Nothing pushes self down and lifts joy up than delighting in and worshiping the one who is worthy of our worship, worthy of our affection, and worthy of our joy. Jesus, the risen King, the sovereign Lord, the highly exalted one, has come for us and has said, I am glad to be with you. So much so that he humbled himself to the point of being obedient to death, even death on a cross, so that we might be redeemed and forgiven. Amen? When this is the central message, when this gospel is the central message of our lives, and when this Jesus, our King, is the central figure of our lives, then it's not a burden to respond to him in service and sacrifice and humility for the good of others and his glory. It is a joy. And so friends, do you want to be filled with joy do you want to find personal happiness that is not rooted in you getting everything that you want? Then let us together turn our attention away from ourselves and towards the risen Jesus, the one whose name is above every name and is worthy of our praise, amen? And so what I, I cannot help but respond, I just, I wanna invite us to stand. As, as we hear these words, I wanna invite us to respond now in singing together declaring the beauty and the excellencies of our King who is worthy of praise and who Jesus, the name above all names, invites us into a kingdom with him. May we sing our hearts out together. Let us sing.